Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. It's your boy Johnny Clutch discussing the latest sports news and giving hot takes in the sports that I love. A lot of NBA stuff to talk about first. Still a lot of trade rumors and a lot of game action last night, so let's get right into it. Uh, first thing I'd like to talk about, according to Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN, the Lakers' first offer to the Pelicans was this. Kyle Kuzma, Lonzo Ball, Rashawn Rondo, Michael Beasley, and a first-round pick for Anthony Davis. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty insulting to the Pelicans' intelligence. You're not going to get a deal done by lowballing the Pelicans. They ain't going to work. Why would they take a lowball offer when they know that the Lakers know that the Celtics can't get into it right now because of the Rose Rule? And the Lakers are well aware of the fact that they're, they're the only team that really can trade for Anthony Davis right now. So if you're a Lakers, Amanda Johnson, the only way you get a trade done before the trade deadline is if you really wow the Pelicans. You have to wow them to the point to where as the Pelicans say, you know what, this trade is so great, we don't even need to, need to see what Boston's going to offer. I don't even know if a package like that exists with the Lakers, but that definitely ate it. Let's go over it. Kuzma and Ball. Okay, those are two good pieces. I don't mind that part of the trade, but now let's get into this. Rajon Rondo. Didn't the Pelicans just basically let Rajon Rondo walk in free agency? I mean, I don't know why they let him walk in free agency, because he was a big part of their success last season. But, they again, they let him walk, and I think it was for the reason that he couldn't stay healthy. But anyways, that's not really something you include in a trade, a guy they, they just had that they didn't want. Doesn't really make sense there. Then Michael Beasley, not really a good trade chip there. Maybe that was just to make the contracts work or something, but still. An old forward that's, you know, by far reached the ceiling in his career, that Michael Beasley is what he is. He ain't getting any better. He's not a young player that can, you know, develop into something. And then only one first-round pick. You're only going to offer one first-round pick for a top-five player in the NBA. I don't know where the Lakers are going with this. Again, this is insulting to the Pelicans' intelligence. You're making them not want to take trade calls with you. Now, if they call again, the Pelicans are going to be are going to be looking at the phone, looking at the caller ID, Amanda Johnson, like, oh, what what kind of crap is he going to offer us this time? And if he keeps offering those low-ball offers, why are the Pelicans going to even return his calls? They're just wasting time with it. And Amanda Johnson, I'll give him credit for him clearing cap space to get LeBron James in the offseason. But I really don't like his history of trade making it. When I mean, you look back at Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, you heard the same things. He kept lowballing these teams and in, in these trade offers, and obviously he didn't get those guys in those trades. And look what happened with Paul George. He ended up staying in OKC. That was the reason why he didn't get him. And Kawhi Leonard, I don't think that story is completely ended yet, but we'll see. But obviously he didn't get him. Toronto got him. But getting back to the whole Celtics thing about how the Lakers are basically you know, trying to trade for Anthony Davis without opposition right now. In the summer, the Celtics can have up to four first-round picks in this draft, and it's a very good draft. And a couple of those are lottery picks. Just say, you know, two of those picks end up in the top five, or even if it's like a number five pick and a number eight pick, you know, those are pretty good trade assets that you can sell off to the Pelicans right there. And the Celtics' intent is most likely trade those picks. The Celtics already have a lot of depth. They don't really need those picks. They already have a wealth of young players. They don't need those picks. They're going to want to use those picks to get a top-level player like Anthony Davis and pair him up with Kyrie. So there's no way if I'm the Pelicans, why would I accept any of these low-ball offers with the Lakers? 
And it's not like Anthony Davis is a free agent this coming offseason. It's the next offseason. There's absolutely no pressure on the Pelicans. Now, the Pelicans have pressure to get a deal done in the offseason. I agree. When the Celtics come into play here, Naked should have a bidding war between those two teams. But for right now, there is absolutely no reason why they should have a deal before the deadline unless the Lakers basically have to just give them the house. I'm talking Kuzma, Ingram, Ball, two to three first-round picks, you name it, whatever it is, they got to give up the house to really wow the Pelicans. It's the only way you get a trade done before the trade deadline. On to another thing about the Lakers. I'm going to talk about LeBron sitting out of this uh, last game against the Warriors. And really, I don't understand it. This is a big, you're, he's quote-unquote sore. This is a big game where you're still fighting for playoff positioning. Right now, after tonight, they're now 10th in the Western Conference. And this is a primetime game against the defending champion, Golden State Warriors, where the Warriors have everyone healthy. Don't you think a great player would want to play in a game like that? And you're telling me you're sore after your first game back, or after he took a whole month off injured. I, I get he was probably rusty his first game back. Everyone is, and he's probably you know working some kinks out. But he had a full day of rest after that. It's not like it was a back-to-back. He doesn't even have that excuse. And what's even worse about all this is that he wasn't even on the bench to support his team in a big game. He was supposed to be a leader of this team, and you came and do that for these guys? He was apparently in a locker room getting treatment. You're in a locker room getting treatment for being sore. That's the reason why you're not out there for your teammates. It's not like you have a bad knee injury where you're worried about you know a player running into you or something like that. You can't even be with your team during the game. Are you kidding me? Also, I hear the reports about the players, you know, barking at Luke Walton because he was talking about unselfishness with the team. I heard it was Lance Stevenson, JaVale McGee, and Michael Beasley all arguing with Luke Walton. I heard it got pretty escalated and it was very heated after the game. And I bet you any money LeBron wasn't there to be seen during that, you know, sticking up for his coach or anything. And he's a reason why some of these players are losing respect for Luke Walton because there's reports that LeBron's camp wants Luke Walton out of L.A., the players are probably thinking, well, he's probably not here long. Why should we listen to what he says? I get that LeBron's a great player now. He's the best player in the game today. But I just hate that he gets a pass for all this and no one's really talking about it. You know, maybe people are calling him a wimp, calling him out for wimping out against the Warriors today. I agree with that. But for the second thing, he's not even with his team. And I bet you he wasn't even in a locker room when all that stuff happened. I mean, come on. You're supposed to be the best player in the world, the leader of this team. Where the heck are you? Your, te- your team's out of the playoffs right now. What, are you waiting for all these guys to get traded and Luke Walton get fired to, to finally care? I think it's very selfish behavior, and I think LeBron should be ashamed of himself, to be honest with you. And all this behavior is leaving the Los Angeles situation to be very toxic at the moment. But that's just how I feel about it. It's very unexcusable, in my opinion, and I feel more people should be talking about it. On to another note here. Uh, last night I was on League Pass watching the games and one game really caught my eye. Now in my last podcast I said that the Denver Nuggets and Dallas Mavericks are two teams I'm looking at for when the Golden State Warriors finally fall and they're going to be there at the top. And I think there's one more team that could be on the rise here and that's the Sacramento Kings. And now I know what everyone's going to say. I know how inept they've been for a really long time. They haven't made the playoffs in over a decade. But they have a lot of young talent, a young nucleus that is very impressive. They had a very nice win against the Sixers last night where the Sixers had Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, and Jimmy Butler all available. And I think this is a story that's kind of flown on the radar this season. Uh, they're currently 27-25 and 25 and ninth place in the Western Conference. And to be honest, they've really outperformed their expectations. A lot of people were saying that this would be a top three worst team. Like they've been for the past, you know, how many ever years? Like five years. They've been a, they've been in the you know basement of the NBA Western Conference standings. 
And these young guys are really fun to watch. These guys fly up and down the court like it's nothing. And De'Aaron Fox is a big part of that. He might be the fastest guard in the NBA. I mean, I'd have probably say Russell Westbrook and John Wall are also in this conversation as well. But I tell you, De'Aaron Fox can really fly down the court. And Buddy Heald's a great running mate with him. They both fit their, they're both their styles fit together so well. De'Aaron Fox is really good at going to the hole and finishing. And he, and when there's guys in the paint, he can kick it out the heel for the three. And Buddy Heald's a, really a knockdown shooter. I love, and I also love Willie Cauley Stein's energy when he runs to the rim. He really brings a lot of energy to the floor for the Sacramento Kings. Bogdanovich is a pure shooter that can fill it up off the bench. And Marvin Bagley. Now, I know a lot of people are saying they made a mistake for not taking Luka Doncic, and I agree with that as well. Luka Doncic is definitely better than Marvin Bagley, but Bagley's a very good player, and he's going to keep developing his game. I also want to give a lot of credit here to Dave Yeager. He's done a great job developing this young talent, and he should be in the running for Coach of the Year. I don't know if he'll get there because he his team is in the playoffs right now, but heck, if they do get make the playoffs, I would make a very strong case that he does deserve it. It would be a tie for me with him and Kenny Atkinson. But the one question mark I have with the Sacramento Kings is, is this front office. This front office is known for being one of the worst in the league. They already tried firing Dave Yeager last season. They tried even firing him sometime this year, too, even when the team was playing well. I don't know why they did that, but the reports were out there that the assistant GM was trying to get Dave Yeager fired. I don't understand that. that that's going to be the whole key for me here. Can the Sacramento Kings front office stay out of the way? Keep drafting like they have. They've been drafting pretty good the last few years, even though they've had a couple of hiccups, like I said, not taking Luka Doncic. But they've drafted pretty good. I said that whole all, that whole young nucleus right there. I think other than Buddy Heald, I think they got him in the DeMarcus Cousins trade. I think other than him, they drafted all those guys. So credit to them. That's a good young team to start with. But they got to stay out of the way in other matters. They can't fire Dave Yeager. They can't make bad trades, give guys bad contracts, and ruin what they're doing. They're finally starting to turn a corner here. There's a light at the end of the tunnel for this team. Don't make any hasty decisions to screw it all, all up. Because this front office has been known to do that. And I think there's a very good possibility it does happen. But if they just let everything keep going as the way it's going, I think this team can really be a contender in the Western Conference for many years. And Sacramento Kings fans, you guys have been really suffering this past decade or over the past decade. You know, I think the last time they had a great team was when they had Chris Webber, Mike Bibby, and all them. There's a there's a light at the end of the tunnel here, guys. Be excited. This team's very fun to watch. They're young. Get ready because this team's going to be a contender if your front office just behaves itself. It'll be very inter- interesting to see how the Sacramento Kings season ends up, and I will be keeping a close eye on it. Now switching to another topic, uh, the NFL awards were last night, and I have to say I agree with a lot of the a lot of the award decisions. Uh, Patrick Mahomes deserved MVP, Andrew Luck deserved Comeback Player of the Year, but there was one that I really disagreed with, and that was Saquon Barkley getting Offensive Rookie of the Year. Now don't get me wrong, I think Saquon Barkley is a future Hall of Famer. He had a very good season, but you can't tell me that Baker Mayfield didn't have more of an impact. And one end, he had Saquon Barkley, who, yes, he was a great running back, but it was for a 5-11 team. And on the other end, you had Baker Mayfield, who took over for a team that was 132-1 and in their last 34 games before he took over as a starter. And you can arguably say at the end of the, at the, end of the regular season, they were looking like a playoff-level team. And you can't say he didn't have the stats to back it up either. He threw for almost 4,000 yards and threw 27 touchdown passes as opposed to 14 interceptions with a quarterback rating of 93.7.
And that's without him playing at all in two games. He finished out the Jets game. Obviously, he didn't start, and he won that game for the Browns. But you're telling me, just say he plays two more games, he gets up to, he breaks over the 4,000-yard mark. He was at about 3,700 with the games that he played. And he probably gets over 30 touchdown passes with those games. And you can say the Browns probably win two more games if he starts those first two against the Steelers and against the New Orleans Saints. Tyrod Taylor was terrible against the Steelers. He was 15 of 40 for under 200 yards. And against the Saints, they only scored 18 points on offense. You're telling me Baker Mayfield couldn't possibly have made a difference in both of those games? He should have been starting since the first opening game. And because of Hugh Jackson's terrible coaching, he didn't have an opportunity to do that. And when Hugh Jackson, who was a terrible coach, I'm going to say again, was finally fired, the team went on a 5-3 and three run to end the season. Just in my opinion, rookie of the year to me means who really made the most impact, who made the most impact on their team winning. Be completely in favor of Saquon Barkley winning rookie of the year if you know Baker Mayfield had all the stats, but the Browns ended up like 3-13 and 13 or 4-12. and 12. I'd have no problem with Barkley getting it. But Barkley was just a great running back on a really bad team. How many times have you seen that before? You see that almost every year. You don't see what Baker Mayfield did with the Browns every season. He took over what was you know, a historically bad team. Like that record I told you, 132-1 in the last 34 games. And he quarterbacked that team, and they looked like a legitimate playoff team. So to me, when they announced Saquon Barkley as the winner, I was pretty shocked. Now, as we all know, it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I'm going to go over the game. I'm going to list what I think all the keys to this game will be, and at the end, I'll give my prediction. So let's get into it. As everyone knows, the New England Patriots will be playing the Los Angeles Rams. The New England Patriots are favored by 2.5 points. The game has an over-under of 56 points at the moment. I honestly think the biggest key to this game is going to be the Rams' pass rush against New England's offensive line. Now, you see all these teams that play New England. This is actually, I think, a bad matchup for the Rams. You always see the Patriots neutralize great pass rushes. They neutralized KC last week, who were one of the leaders in the league in sacks. They didn't even touch Brady. You know, the Chargers the week before didn't even touch Brady, and they they had Bosa, Ingram, and all them boys on a defensive line. So history shows that this isn't really a good matchup. New England has shown that they can really neutralize a great pass rush. So it will be key for the Rams to have Donald get in the backfield, Sue. If anyone can figure out how to get past the Pats' great offensive line, it's Wade Phillips. Wade Phillips will have to mix things up, do some stunts, do whatever, do some different things to get those guys in the backfield and ultimately get pressure on Brady. That's why I think will really be the biggest key in this game. One other key I think we're going to look at here is you know Todd Gurley. Obviously, when they played the Saints due to health or him playing bad, we don't really know the whole story behind it. He said he just played bad. I don't really agree with that. You know, biggest game of the season. I don't think that you, you know, sit Todd Gurley on the sideline and think C.J. Anderson's a better option. But anyways, what will Todd Gurley be like? Is he really 100%? Will he be out there for all the snaps? Or are we going to see a lot of the, what we saw against the Saints where C.J. Anderson's going to be leading the show in the backfield for the Rams? In a Super Bowl, and especially against the Patriots, need all hands on deck. And Todd Gurley is going to be a key factor in this game. Another key thing in this matchup, I believe, will be the Rams' secondary against Tom Brady and his receivers. The Rams' secondary had a very impressive game against Drew Brees and the Saints. Michael Thomas had under 40 receiving yards, and they really halted that whole Saints passing game. And it was a big reason why they ended up winning. The only real passing game that the Saints had last that game against the Rams was Alvin Kamara, who had 11 receptions for 96 yards. 
And what you've noticed from the Patriots, you know, especially in the postseason, is that they're doing a lot of dinking and dunking. It's a lot of Julian Edelman. It's a lot of James White out of the backfield for them in their passing offense. So I don't know if the Rams were last game were just trying to tr- play to the Saints' strengths. They were trying to, you know, probably get rid of Michael Thomas. And they're trying to force those passes to Kamara, thinking, okay, we'll give him those instead of, you know, those deeper passes to Michael Thomas. I can see that happening. So they're probably going to have a different game plan in place for this. And also, I feel Gronk could play a big factor in this game as well. I really feel the Patriots' plan with Gronk all season was that they weren't really going to use him much in their regular season game planning. And you saw he missed a lot of games, too. I think that was mostly for maintenance as well. And that they were going to save him for these games. You saw last week against, or not last week, uh, a couple weeks ago against the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game. He had six catches for 79 yards, and that was by far one of his best games of the season. And if I was a betting man, I would say this is probably Gronk's last game due to his injury history. So I think the Patriots are really going to have no choice but to really lay it all in the line in this game. I mean, obviously it's a Super Bowl and everything, but hey, it's his last game. So they're really going to unleash Gronk, in my opinion. He's going to be very involved in the game plan against the Rams. Like he was last game against the Chiefs, where he arguably made the biggest catch of the season for the Patriots. One last thing I think is going to be really interesting in this game is the two mastermind head coaches that you have in place. You have Sean McVay, the young offensive genius, against Bill Belichick, who's more of an old-school defensive guru. Both strategic style of head coaches, both very good at their craft, and it'll be very interesting to see the chess match between those two. So here's my prediction for today's Super Bowl. I think the Patriots will win 31-28 over the Rams. I think this game will not go into overtime like the NFC and AFC Championship games a couple weeks back. But it will end on the last play of the game where Steven Goskowski will make a 45-yard field goal. Quote me on that prediction because I think it's going to happen. And if it doesn't happen, forget I said anything. <laughs> well, anyways, I think this game will be very fun and interesting to watch. These are two very high-quality teams. Both teams are well-coached. And I think the Rams have more talent than the Patriots. But hey, the Patriots have Tom Brady. I mean, the guy only has five Super Bowl rings, right? I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the podcast. Leave likes and replies on all the social media platforms. Hit those subscribe buttons on iTunes and Google Play. I hope everyone enjoys the Super Bowl. I hope it's a close, fun game to watch. Until next time, it's your boy Johnny Clutch. Peace out.